Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, December 17th, and this is the weekly market update. The disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. I'm not a financial advisor. I cannot give you financial advice. This is for informational purposes only. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, so I wanted to show this chart. I've seen it a couple other places. Uh, Bison Interest put it out this week on their Substack, but I've seen it in other places too. And so basically what you have here is two uh, representations of two different securities, basically USO, which is the oil ETF, physical ETF, and XLE, which is the ETF for the um, explorers and production companies. And what you see is a fairly large divergence. If you go back in time, and this only goes back to the start of this year, but you will note this is pretty, uh, if you drag it out further, if you go to stock charts or some charting and do a comparison, some charting software, you will note that what you see prior to October on this chart is what you typically see. You see the oil stocks basically tracking the oil price. However, since October or so, you see there's a fairly large divergence between the oil price and the oil stocks. The oil stocks, uh, you see the oil prices dropped off fairly significantly since, the, um, since we've had uh, the invasion um, and the peaks in the oil price back in the summer. And we've been sliding ever since although we appear to, you know, may have bottomed and, you know, I, I don't do short-term price forecasting. Nevertheless, what we haven't seen is the oil stocks come in. And so I wanted to talk about this because I think that, you know, we've put out scenarios of why we think the oil price is going up, not down. And I'm wondering what the stocks are telling us. Now, it could be several things. Let's get into this. We could be saying, okay, that the oil price drop is temporary because of the factors I'm going to discuss in the subsequent slides. And that's why the oil stocks are looking past the recent price drop into that. Uh, that's one possibility. The other possibility is that a lot of the energy stocks, and particularly the oil produ producing stocks, have really outperformed over basically the last year or almost two years. And so a lot of people have crowded into them. And so they haven't sold yet. They haven't got the memo that the oil price is going down, that we're going into this worldwide recession, global recession, it's going to be bad. And energy demand is going to go down. Therefore, uh, the oil price will go down and the returns on oil stocks will go down. Uh, their earnings will go down, their cash flows will go down. That's another possibility. Uh, the other possibility is that these the oil price goes up a little bit and the oil stocks come in a little bit and you know so this divergence closes so the other thing it could be telling us also is that you know uh, like i mentioned earlier that this oil price drops temporary so i don't make any predictions and prognostications i'm trying not to do that anymore that's kind of hard to do uh on short term what's going to happen i mean longer term i think that uh, a lot of people would find agreement in with the fact that the underinvestment, the chronic underinvestment is going to, in the mid and long term, lead to an energy crisis, kind of that we're in already, but that's going to be manifest in much higher prices. So I just wanted to point this out because divergences like this typically don't last. This will resolve either with the oil stocks coming in or the oil price going up. So um, I make no short-term prediction, but like I said, I'm going to make a case here in the subsequent slides that a lot of the factors that were influencing the oil price on the downside are now reversing. And so maybe the oil price, the oil stocks are looking past this short-term, um, short-term divergence. I did not know. I just thought this was very interesting and something to consider if you are contemplating putting new money to work in oil and gas stocks. So this is uh, something I introduced today. Got this also from Josh Young. He had this on Twitter and you can follow this in real time. I put a link in the um, show notes last week, but this is a site that tracks uh, flights 
airline flights inside each country. You can go to any, just about any country and it will show you uh, the past four years for comparison. So obviously this is since the bottom of the um, China's COVID lockdown policy, zero COVID policy, if you will, and their rapid reopening. And you've seen what's happened with airline flights. If you go and look at this, at this site, you'll see that uh, flights are basically doubled in the last week. And so this is uh, last year, and we're only 8% 8, 8 lower than 2021. And you see this is just rocketing higher. So this is, why am I showing this? Well, this is an indication that they are in fact opening up. Um, the other thing that we're seeing is a lot of news reports that this variant of the flu is this particular uh, COVID strain is ripping through Chinese cities. We're seeing it all over Twitter, message boards. People have family there, friends, everybody's sick. But, uh, and we have had an increase from what I've seen in the media, an increase in deaths, which you can probably think would happen. But um, still remains to be seen if the, this is gonna be something where it rips through the population like it did in many other countries in the West once we finally agreed that it was the virus had attenuated itself and been more virulent, but less or spreads faster, but isn't as um, tough on the body, wasn't you know, you know, making people as sick or killing people. So hopefully that'll be the same thing that happens in China. They won't back off the uh, reopening. I don't think they will. I think that uh, they're not even... I think I also saw reports that are not really even fully reporting all of the cases. That's following kind of some of the reopening that we saw in other countries, right? You just kind of throw up your hands and say, this has to go through the population over the next six to eight weeks. People need to get sick, recover, and move on. Uh, then you have herd immunity. So I think that's that's the plan. And you just see, uh, I think that will put I don't, I think the Chinese, Chinese New Year is like later in January. I don't know the exact dates, but I think that a large portion of the population, this will have made its way through a large portion of the population by then. And I think that uh, maybe that's another thing that the Chinese authorities timed so that they can really have everybody, you know, because you're talking about if the Chinese emulate what other people have done in other countries, we're going to see possibly a big spending boom. People were cooped up for three years in China. I mean, and worse than anybody in the West was. So a lot of savings, a lot of wanting to get out and spread your wings. Basically what we saw in the West, I think we'll, we'll see something similar in China. And this obviously, why I show the flights, this is going to lead to increased energy demand, specifically oil. As we have said before, because of the lockdowns, Chinese demand is down depending on what analyst you want to listen to, anywhere from two to three million barrels a day. So if that now comes back over the next month or so, uh, that would be a significant increase in demand. Now, the Chinese have built quite large stocks of inventory of oil uh, in the interim. So it will take time to you know, go through those stocks and then start their demand affecting, you know, the world market. But this is the reversal of something that was a bearish uh, weight on the oil market, which was the lockdowns, which were causing a, a, uh, a wet blanket on Chinese demand anywhere, like I said, between two, two and a half, three million barrels a day. So this is one data point. We'll continue to watch the information out of China. Um, maybe if they have this death spiral, like people are, you know, some people were predicting that. I mean, I, I just don't see it. I think there'll be old people there, people that are compromised with their immunity that will die. People die of the flu every year. That doesn't minimize the individual deaths, but you know, like I said before in other channels or other, on my reality check channel, I mean, in a typical flu season, just from influenza, anywhere from 20 to 50 to 60,000 people a year would die in the U S of the flu depending on how bad the flu season was. And nobody made a major deal out of it because we accepted the fact that that was going to happen because it wasn't plastered all over the media 24 seven. So um, we'll see how they manage this. If it stays on the trajectory it is, then we will see you know, this oil demand. It's just, 
kind of coinciding with a lot of people throwing in the towel on energy, right? Um, I'm hearing more and more of the of the view that the global we're going to have this massive global recession and it's going to put a really big damper on energy demand. Well, we'll see. I, I like I said, we have these we're going to have these now competing forces. We have this reopening in China and some of the other things we're going to talk about. And then also the EU and the US basically are already in recessions, in my view. So, but if you look at previous recessionary environments, it doesn't really result necessarily in reduced oil demand. There's only been four or five times in the last 60 years where oil demands went down. Two of those were the COVID lockdowns in 2020 and the 2008 great financial crisis. Now, I'm not saying we won't have something similar to the GFC. I don't know, but uh, that's currently not in the cards. So we'll continue to wa watch the data and see what happens. Like I said, there'll be a lag effect. It's not just going to like immediately have an effect on oil prices. But I think that if the reopening continues, if you get 2 million barrels back of demand by the spring, you know, I'm not sure the market can handle that. In addition to the other things that we're going to talk about that are happening in the oil market. So this is the other thing. This is just a blurb. Uh, this is somebody I follow uh, on Twitter. They do a pretty good job. Um, like I said, all analysts don't get it right all the time, but this particular person does seem to get it right more often than not. And one of the things they're reporting, which I haven't confirmed, is that Russia's crude exports are dropping down 500 to 700,000 barrels a day, month to month over month, month to date. And so, you know, you had the, the sanctions on crude, Russian crude for the EU coming into effect, I think it was December 5th. And so one of the things that really happened that you saw crude tanker rates go a little bit nuts in the last month or so was I think that uh, Russia was really flooding the market with crude, as much crude as it could. Um, that was something that some analysts were saying. So. If that's went away now, if they were emptying some storage or whatever they had, like I said, we had a lot of tankers, tanker rates were fairly high and uh, recently. So uh, I haven't confirmed this, but again, if this is true, that this is another positive development that we were we have talked about, um, a reversal, right? So um, if, if they're not able to export the full volumes that they were in the past, and now, okay, so now you're talking about two and a half million barrels of Chinese demand coming back, half a million barrels of Russian supply off the market. Now you're at three, three million barrels that the market needs to come up with. So uh, we'll keep going here. So this is what we were anticipating. Next positive is that the, uh, it was announced last week that Biden is going to begin to refill the strategic petroleum reserve. Now, I'm not saying it's gonna be this massive push to refill it, but just not draining it anymore to the tune of, you know, 800,000 to a million barrels a day, which they were doing over the last six months. That's now another million barrels that you have to add now. Okay. So, um, and if you, you know, we have this article from, I think CNN says the Biden administration announced plans Friday to provide nearly 2 million barrels of oil to refineries through an emergency exchange and simultaneously begin efforts to replenish the SPR early next year. The Biden administration is beginning plans to repurchase crude oil for the SPR for the first time since that unprecedented release earlier this year. The Energy Department is planning to solicit bids to repurchase up to 3 million barrels of oil for the SPR to be delivered in February, a senior administration official said. The repurchase will pilot a new approach to buy back the oil at a fixed price. So the news here isn't really the buying of oil or the, you know, how it's going to happen. I don't anticipate it's going to be this massive refill. Um, what I think is important is the, just the uh, end of releases that was adding supply to a market, right? Now you've stopped that. So now you're 4 million barrels. So if we took all of the things that we were talking about um, over the last couple of months that were acting as a uh, bearish fun fundamentals on the oil market are now reversing and becoming uh, bullish. So the, 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 um, 
the wind is no longer in our face. The wind is starting to get into our sails, right? So we're seeing, like I said, it's review. We have a Chinese demand coming back now as the reopening seems to be uh, in place and in, in happening in China. Uh, the end of the SPR uh, withdrawals. Russian uh, supply coming off because of sanctions and they're, you know, the last month or so them flooding the market. And, you know, the next slide, which we'll talk about oil demand is up. The IEA is forecasting higher global oil demand for 22 and 23, respectively from 2.2 million barrels a day to 2.3 and from 1.6 to 1.7. Key sentence here, India booming oil demand explains a lot of the strength. Another price rally cannot be ruled out, the IEA says. So again, it's hard to forecast what's going to happen. We have all of these positive things now starting to go our way, turning from bearish to bullish fundamentals, yet we still have the specter of this uh, recession in the US and EU that's going to happen. But listening to some other analysts around, um, I think we're closer to the end of this uh, rate raising cycle than we are to the beginning, uh, just because of the fact that it's obvious inflation has rolled over due to the base effect comparison. You have energy prices way down year over year. And you have other components, uh, inputs. Now, real estate prices are rolling over. So owner equivalent rent should slowly but surely roll over. That's 40% of the calculation. Use uh, car prices and used car prices, used car prices specifically now, which is 4% of the calculation, that's rolling over. So more and more components are rolling over that I believe will, uh, you know, this stance, I don't, I still don't buy the stance that it's going to be higher for longer, just because of the debt situation in the US. And so ultimately, if we get a pause in rate increases, and then sometime maybe in the spring, late spring, I don't know, maybe in the second half of next year, hard to forecast. Uh, at some point, if we have a recession really acknowledged, and I think that as you know, people get laid off and we see the effects of it, then that will give the cover. I don't think we're going to get back to 2% uh, inflation. And I think that you'll start seeing um, language and you'll start seeing a view put out by the government and by the Fed that we don't necessarily uh, need to get back to 2%. So uh, to justify, you know, what they're going to have to do because the debts are just so large in the U.S. and the need to roll the debt. I mean, I was listening to Luke Grom and I'll put a link to his uh, interview that he had this week, which is pretty good, was on Wealthion. I've heard him in a couple other places. But he kind of really explained it well, what some of the options are for the United States. I mean, you're going to get into the situation where you could potentially have a crisis like the UK had recently. Um, and, you know, so you have two ways of dealing with this debt and the interest payments at these higher rate rates is to, you know, the Fed has to monetize it or you let the market uh, rate uh, bring rates to a level that brings capital to it. So, you know, the amount of money that's going to have to come to uh, buy this treasury debt is going to be larger than the capital that's available just from global. I mean, if the entire globe, we're getting the debts are so large and the burden is becoming so large now that the ability to finance it from the private sector, from investors is going to become difficult, if not impossible. So I'll put a link to that. I thought it was a good interview. You ha might have to listen to it a couple times because it does get into the weeds quite a bit. But I think if you understand where we're going, you understand that we're not going, you know, we're not going to be um, higher for longer. And, you know, if you know the history of the Fed, they don't really, my view is, is they, they, they play it by ear. Okay. They say things and I'll show a slide later on of what they were saying this time last year, which is totally different than what's going on right now and what they're saying now. So they change, they will change their view because they're a political animal. That's what they are. They have to respond to the politics. They try to maintain this facade or this canard that they are independent and that they, you know, only, you know, they're not influenced by politics, but they're certainly influenced by politics, certainly influenced by the news, influenced by the financial system. 
and the people in the financial system, because look at a person like Jerome Powell, he came out of that system. Does he really want to go to holiday parties and to golf outings and hang out with his buddies that were all in finance? He said, you're killing us over here with these rate increases. So, uh, you know, that's what I'm thinking. And the problem is, is now you're going to possibly run, I'll, I'll talk about this in the last slide, but you're going to run into this uh, issue of, again, you have supply constraints on the economy that are put in by policymakers and by uh, pol bad policies that are causing, you know, the Fed can't make any more barrels of oil. The Fed can't make any more copper mines. The Fed can't plant more wheat. All they can do is raise rates and crush economic activity, which is politically not going to work because uh, populists and people on the left are going to start harping and crying about you know, uh, the effects of doing that. Yes, if you raised rates tomorrow to 10%, you would crush the economy, inflation would come down, you'd go, go into deflation fairly quickly, but that's not politically going to work. So if you look at it from that perspective, these people just say what they need to say to get through each meeting. And, uh, you know, I think, like I said, we're closer to the end of the rate raising cycle than we are uh, to the beginning. That, that would be my view. And again, you know, the IEA makes forecasts also, but this is consistent with what we've seen throughout history that you typically do see one and a half, one, one and a half, two percent increases in oil demand every year, unless you have some great worldwide economic cataclysm akin to the great financial crisis or these lockdowns we had. Barring that, um, because you have these emerging markets, the demand just continues to increase. You know, India's sucking in as much they have a really good racket going there is that they're buying um, Russian crude for the equivalent of, you know, $40 a barrel, $45 a barrel. And they're refining it into refined products like diesel that they're selling to Europe at the equivalent of $130, $140 a barrel. So, of course, they have huge demand. They're running this arbitrage deal like you wouldn't believe. And uh, why wouldn't they? People do what's in their self-interest. The EU and many other countries have cut themselves off from direct access to Russian oil and products. It has to come from somewhere. Uh, if your economy requires X amount of molecules and you cut off one of your main suppliers, you have to get those molecules from somewhere else. And so a place like India or refiners in the Middle East, this is why we're seeing product tanker rates go through the roof and why we're extremely bullish on that also. So I kind of jumped around here a lot, guys, but... Uh, I think you see where this is kind of going for 2023, or at least it's setting up that way. I mean, again, I'm not, nothing's 100% certain, but if you look at the fundamentals, they seem to be shifting. Now, price, we cannot ignore price. Price is, you know, cut in half literally from the highs during the beginning of the invasion. So what is that telling us also? We have to look at it, cannot ignore it. It's telling us something. But I think that the fundamentals that were causing those price reductions are now reversing. That's my view. And I also, I want to add one other thing. You know, I don't think that OPEC is going to sit around and let the price of oil continue to drop into the, you know, 60s and 50s. They, uh, they see that, well, they need a certain dollar amount for, they need a certain monetary compensation for the oil that they sell. So I, I would suspect if we see prices continuing down, that we could see another announcement of production cuts. So don't take that off the table here. That's like a wild card that could come out of left field. And I would say that a lot of stocks in our portfolio, they haven't really dropped that much. They have a little bit as far as the oil stocks. But you have to remember, we have, we have stocks in there that now have paid down all of their debt or a large portion of their debt. And they, I have one company in there that makes a tremendous, their, their field is so, their, their field that they have an interest in is so prolific that it's even $60 a barrel, they do, ter they do terrific, okay? And I think that a lot of these people are going to get their costs under control and the debts are down and that, that does have an effect also, right? You're not, you don't have a knife. You don't have the sort of Damocles over your head because you've spent the last year and a half, two years taking these huge streams of cash flow you've got from these higher prices and paying down debt, which we've talked about ad nauseum. 
So this is the other thing that I think is needs to be thought about. We talked about, you know, as the governments in the West reacted, that's what politicians do. You know, a politician doesn't want to just sit there. Sometimes I, I knew this medic in the uh, Navy, and he's, you know, we had sick call, people would go there and he would say like nine times out of 10, the best thing to do is just rest. He said, rest and resolve. They were, most of these things that I see every day are going to resolve with some time and some rest. Okay. Don't do anything. Okay. Uh, you don't need to make a major production of everything. You know, yes, if somebody breaks their arm or something that's different, or somebody has some ailment, but nine times out of 10, most things will resolve on their own. Uh, I think it's the same thing with this energy crisis. You know, if we would have just had a real free market approach to this, high prices would have cured high prices, but we haven't done that, right? We have this, especially in the West, this zero carbon, this worship of climate change, whatever, uh, and governments have adopted it and they've declared war on, you know, fossil fuel producers. We've had the media, academia, all of the intelligentsia, financial uh, folks, even though we're starting to see a turn on that. Now we've seen, you know, Vanguard and some other folks now reversing their uh, ESG stance. But, you know, we've told these uh, oil companies and fossil fuel producers, you're bad. You're bad people, bad, bad people. And we don't want you to be part of society. And the things that you provide to us that allow us to have civilization, we don't understand that or care. You're just bad people because that's, you know, the new religion. That's the current in thing. And so part of that was when oil prices went high, um, a lot of governments took the opportunity to slap windfall profit taxes on energy companies. And we said that if you did that, if you tax something, you'll get less of it. We know that from previous exercises, you know, of raising taxes on things, it causes less of the thing that you tax. If you tax overall economic activity, you get less of it. If you tax cigarettes, you get less smoking. If you tax oil and gas excess profits, you get less activity. Um, again, these are cyclical commodity price takers, right? And they, in a 10 year period, they have, like I said, a year and a half to two years of super uh, above normal profits. And that gives them the cash flow and the returns to stay in business uh, for the other eight years that, you know, they middle along and don't make any money or even lose money. And so, but that's not popular. We don't want to have that discussion. They're, they're greedy. They're evil. Why do we care? So that's the discussion that we're told. And so what I said was, if you put these excess profit taxes on, people were going to stop drilling. And this is what we have seen. This is from the Daily Telegraph in the UK. Biggest North Sea producer refuses to drill new oil wells because of windfall tax. Uh, we've seen some other companies say the same thing. Now, this is in the not the overall North Sea. This is the UK North Sea. So Britain's largest North Sea oil producer is refusing to bid for new UK oil and gas wells and reviewing its investments in response to the government's tax rate on the sector. Harbor Energy said it had decided not to bid for new blocks in the ongoing North Sea licensing round, the first since 2019. After the government imposed a windfall tax on oil and gas producers earlier in the year, Harbor Energy said, quote, as a result of the extension of the energy profits levy announced in the government's autumn statement, we are reviewing investment levels and company-wide capital allocation. This review is ongoing, and in the meantime, we have decided not to submit bids as part of this licensing process. And so this is, again, another tailwind for why I'm bullish in the mid and long term for oil. So let me explain a little bit about, because I heard a good uh, explanation of this on Jim Poplava's show. I listened to that. He's really actually a pretty smart guy. He's a general wealth advisor and, you know, helps people with their portfolios. And I always thought he was kind of a, you know, fogey, you know, but he, he's actually pretty insightful. And what, what he's talking about this last week um, is where, where I kind of agree with him about how he put it about how, where we're at this energy market, which I think is a decade long opportunity. And he said, you know, typically what happens in these markets, this guy's been in the markets for 50 years. 
he says is, you know, you have a turn in these, like a resource market or this oil market, and you have the original people that come into it, right? Speculators or early movers. That's us, right? We recognize the opportunity. And then what you see after that is, you know, um, uh, institutional money starts recognizing it coming into the market. That's your next leg up. And then as this thing starts to gain momentum, uh, then you'll see retail come in heavy. Okay. Sometimes we get this view that uh, retail uh, is in this already because we go on some spaces, but you see the same 20 or 30 guys on these spaces on Twitter talking about these Canadian oil companies and stuff like that. The average person is not, is not into these stocks yet. And then fourth of the cycle, the fourth thing that happens is that once politicians and regulators and policymakers realize the mistakes they've made, then they turn, again turn, and then you'll see these things go away because the oil and gas that we need is not being produced. And so this is going to take time, and this is what the opportunity is. So um, that was his thinking, and I kind of agree with that. Uh, that seems to be how it's going to work. You know, at some point, um, again, I think that oil prices in the not-too-distant future uh, are going to make new all-time high inflation-adjusted highs simply because the demand for oil is not going down. I've talked about the emerging markets many, many times. The per capita consumption is well below the consumption in the West, and these populations are huge. These are spreadsheet exercises. I've done this before. I did a calculation on this maybe 10 years ago. I probably need to do it again. I've said that before, but you know, just take the populations of China, India, Indonesia, look at their current per capita oil consumption, and then don't even take it to the U.S.'s level, right? Because the U.S. has the highest per capita oil consumption. Take it to the level of like the average of like more developed countries in Asia, South Korea, Japan, okay? Take it to that level. And I think last time I did the calculation, I was getting to like 120 million barrels a day, okay? And so I don't see, I think the demand increases that we're seeing in these countries in Asia are relentless. They're going to continue for many years. And I don't, you know, I think you're going to see a combination of things. You're going to, you know, I don't think that we can supply 120 million barrels a day, but I think the price will go up and that will ration. You'll see a decline in usage in the West and an increase in usage in the East. That's what I think. And we've talked about that. I talked about that on my reality check last week. We're already seeing now, um, that's the next thing you're going to see in the West in some Western countries, more progressive ones is climate lockdowns. And that's the thing that's coming next, which will reduce fuel consumption. So uh, anyways, I think we have a lot of bullish things, winds at our sales. And, you know, we've seen the same thing in the Permian Basin. We've seen Permian operators say the same thing. We're not going to increase. We're not going to go drill, baby, drill, because we're not incentivized to do that. And the regulators are speaking out of both sides of their mouth. They're telling us to drill. At the same time, they're trying to kill this industry. It was funny because somebody, um, one of the press uh, White House press corps, I think it was Deuce, Peter Ducey, asked the uh, whatever she, the press stooge they send out there, I forget her name, Corrine Jean Pierre, whatever, uh, about this. And she just refused to answer, closed the book, and left the stage. You know, you're, you're asking the oil companies to increase production. In the meantime, you're, you know, trying to put them out of business. And she didn't want to, didn't want to address that. So in the end, you know, government policy, and this religion of climate change is going to cause uh, a, 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 a bull market in things because we've demonized all these things and we need these things for modern civilization. And what's even more ironic and amusing to me is that you need to dig things out of the ground for this energy transition. And I don't really think that they understand that. I simply do not think they understand it, many of them on that, uh, that are advocating for this. And if you make it even worse by doing things like this, then you're just going to see this. There's nothing the Fed can do about this. Okay. And so um, I think what you will see that part of the reason why the late seventies, early eighties inflation was crushed is not just that Mr. Volcker raised rates to levels high above the inflation rate and crush the economy and subsequently crush the inflation. The other thing was that you had the Reagan administration come into power and there was tons of deregulation, okay? And this just whole 
change in the mindset of the statist, uh, you know, Johnson administration and Nixon taking us off the goals here and all this government intervention in the economy, which just raised costs. And, you know, the Carter administration, you know, something similar to what you're seeing now, right? Um, especially like in Europe, put a sweater on, right? That kind of stuff, lower your thermostat. Him sitting next to a fire in the White House, giving the, you know, turn your thermostat down, put on a sweater speech. So we've talked about all these things before. And like I said, in the short term, I don't know what's going to happen, but I just don't see anything except for higher prices in the mid to long term. So here we are, Javier Blas. Uh, global coal demand has risen to a record high in 2022, surpassing the 8 billion ton level for the first time, according to a new IEA report. The IEA now forecasts fresh coal consumption records for 23 and again in 25. So I don't know. I, I'm invested in coal. Uh, this is a good time for me to make a plug. I will have a video next week. Next week, I will have the announcement of the 2023 stock of the year. Yes, it's blatant clickbait. Yes, it's a marketing gimmick. Yes, I'm unashamed for it, okay? Um, but, you know, in, like I explained before, um, this I've given some public uh, stock picks that have done fairly well. And I'm bringing back what I used to have in the old blog that I had many years ago, which I would have just for fun, uh, have a very highly speculative company that... Uh, I thought had the potential to double in, in the next year, in the next uh, calendar year. And uh, that did fairly well. And uh, I'm bringing that back as a fun thing. Now it's highly speculative. Uh, it will be a coal stock. It's kind of an interesting company that if everything goes according to plan, I think has tremendous opportunity, uh, but it could be a zero too. So stay tuned for that next week. Again, unash unashamed, unabashed, clickbait uh, marketing here, but uh if you're interested in that, tune in next week. I'll talk about that at the end of the year show. But anyways, here we are back to this. I mean, what's interesting again is you almost have this government enforced moat around a lot of these coal companies, right? Because, well, it's not the same in like China and India, but in the West, you know, you're not, we've talked about this before, you're not going to build a new coal mine. So if you have existing assets, if you have existing production capacity, we've seen coal prices have pulled back a little bit recently, but they're well above the historical averages. So again, these companies now are in the, in the, in the um, cuckoo bird seat and they have paid down a lot of debt and a lot of cash is coming through them, which will be returned to shareholders. So, um, some people have described these coal companies as being the tobacco companies of the next decade or so. We'll see. Um, but uh, again, uh, you know, if you're going to, we're, we're finding out, I think, that the transition into rebuildables isn't really going to work. And so I think that, uh, you know, you've seen it in Europe, for example. $500 billion spent on the energy vendee energy vendee, the uh, energy transition in Germany, which was unsuccessful. Um, and now you have, uh, you know, Europe, because it cut off its main energy supplier, Russia, um, has spent like half a trillion euros in energy subsidies this year. That can't go on ad infinitum. And so you have all this coal burning starting again. Um, I saw one, we, we reported on this several, maybe a couple months ago, where a portion of a German wind farm was being tort taken down or de demolished in order to allow for the exploitation of the coal that was underneath that portion of the wind farm. I mean, you just see all these ridiculous, uh, um, you know, things happening because we don't have the coherent policy. And so we'll continue to ride this. And, uh, you know, as long as the gravy's flowing, we'll keep our uh, lips on the spigot. So Goldman Sachs uh, saying that commodities to outperform in 2023, uh, basically, you know, I don't know, maybe they're talking their own book, you take this for what it is, but again, supply shortages are biting. We're seeing this across the commodity complex. If China opens up like 
many people are forecasting, you know, they are the largest user of like largest importer of oil and copper and these things. Now, many analysts are saying that the Chinese model is broken and that they we won't see the same effects of on prices and importation of raw materials. I don't know. I'm not. How do how does anybody really know what's going on in China? I mean, it's so big. The government there, the Communist Party, has such control of things as far as can make can make dictates. Yes, they have a tremendous amount of debts. Is it sustainable? I don't know. You know, you never can tell when something gets to the end of a situation. It's like the U.S. We have these tremendous debts, and but everything is recency bias, right? Everything was fine yesterday. Things are fine today. More than likely, things will be fine tomorrow. Things will go on till they can't go on any longer. It's very difficult to forecast and make actionable uh, <coughs> investment decisions based on a lot of unknowables. What we can say is they're coming out of three years of lockdown. And what if, if there's any um, telegraphing from what happened from the rest of the world, when the place opens up, uh, then we're going to see a big, I think, surge in uh, imports of raw materials and things like that. So we'll see. Uh, again, you cannot discount the rest of the world, the emerging markets, what's happening there. Um, again, that, of course, again, like I said earlier in this video, juxtaposed against the uh, oncoming recession in the West. So want to have some good nuclear news this week. You know, Japan restarts nuclear reactors of Japan's total 54 reactors and 17 plants with a combined capacity of 48 gigawatts. Only 10 reactors have restarted since the introduction of stricter safety regulations. The government now plans to restart all 17 plants in the summer of 2023 and has set a target for nuclear generation to produce 20 to 22% of its total power supply in 2030. I think we've talked about this before, but again, you know, we've talked about why Japan needs to do this, why they have to have this reliance on nuclear power, even in the shadow of the Fukushima uh, disaster. But this is good news, right? This is uh, a major you know, if this happens, like they say, the reactors are coming. They brought the like four reactors on for the winter. They're, they are moving towards this goal and adding back these 17 or these uh, 17 plants by the summer of 2023 would be, uh, I mean, these aren't small reactors. So uh, again, positive for long-term uranium demand, taking these things that have been literally offline since what, 2011, 2012, uh, and bringing these things back online brings us increased demand, significant demand. Uh, India increases its nuclear plans. It says, uh, this is from Bloomberg, India plans to add 21 nuclear reactors by 2031. That's nine years. India plans to add 21 nuclear reactors with a combined capacity of 15.7 gigawatts by 2031. Energy minister, the energy minister said, nuclear power can supplement renewable energy and help reduce dependence on coal. The minister informed lawmakers Wednesday in a written reply to questions in parliament. India currently has 6.78 gigawatts of nuclear operation or generation capacity across 22 reactors, all operated by state-owned Nuclear Power Corp of India. Then they give a list of the various reactors they're talking about bringing online. 10 more reactors of 700 megawatts each to be completed through 2031 without giving specific timelines to completion. So again, more positive demand news, not get seeing the big supply response. We're seeing more contracts now being signed with uh, smaller companies. Um, and you're not going to see big announcements from like Cameco and Kaz Adaprom about we sold made this 10-year agreement with China nuclear power for so many pounds at this price. It's not how it works, very opaque market. Eventually, this will come into the news and come into the market. Um, again, I became, I'm long-term bullish. Now, again, you have to really know what you own in these markets just because you don't know when the price is going to take off. When we reach the critical point where the demand is going to become an issue relative to supply. 
uh, that's coming. It has, it's happening. Um, nothing's really changed with the fundamentals of nuclear power and uranium in my mind. Again, I can say this, if you're just, if this is the first time you're hearing about uranium or you just got into my newsletter two months ago, yeah, you're not having, it's hard for you to look at the same prospects, but if you, you know, we were buying these things two years ago, three years ago for 10 cents, you know, 10, five or 10% of what they're selling for now. So we have tremendous gains that we're sitting on. And I think we're going to have tremendous gains going forward. I think what's going to happen to really reignite a lot of these resource stocks is I think once the tight liquidity conditions in the markets, remember, these are highly speculative risk on assets. And with global tightening, you have monetary policy around the world tightening. Okay. And so it's difficult in that environment for anything to go higher. You're literally in a bear market, right? Worldwide bear market. And so even good news, I have companies in my portfolio that are country ETFs or even the situation in Uzbekistan, the country's booming over there. And you know the stock market's kind of stagnant because we are draining liquidity around the world. Again, I go back to what Druckenmiller said, in the short term and medium term, sediment, market sediment, how people feel about the market and liquidity is what drives markets. In the long term, yes, fundamentals will drive it. But in the short term, sediment and, um, and that goes for a lot, everything. So you're in a bear market. Most things are soft and weak. Who's putting money? Mo you know, there's not big institutional push into these uranium stocks yet. And there's not going to be until liquidity starts increasing. It's a thin market. Nothing's really happening. Sediment's not good. And it's a lot of retail people. A lot of tourists came in over the last year. Liquidity's been, been tightened for over a year. Sediment's negative. There's no interest. Nothing's going to happen. So um, if you're patient, I think you're going to be well rewarded because you see the fundamentals over the medium and long term are tremendous. Okay. Um, you just have to know what you own. You can't own companies that have no money have no prospects and are just going to issue shares and dilute you. Yes, when liquidity comes back in the market, once we go through the next liquidity cycle, which is going to happen eventually, probably sometime next year, then you'll see interest come back into a lot of these. I think a lot of these uh, risk on speculative type issues are going to fly in that type of environment because the amount of money printing in the next cycle is going to be tremendous. And so you'll see uh, the energy crisis is not is not going to be solved. And I think what you're starting to see is the beginnings of the realization that we are not going to solve or mitigate carbon or anything without one of two things happening. Severely containing economic growth and, and basically rolling it back, rolling back living standards, okay, to cut energy usage. That's one option. That's what the WEF and the Masters of the Universe of Davos are pursuing in the West. And you juxtapose that against people in the East that want to have a better standard of living. And that's where the power and the population is and the growth is. And they're going, that's not going to happen with wind and solar. And that realization is starting to happen that you're not going to fix this supposed issue that they're trying to fix with rebuildables. You're going to have to go to nuclear. And it's, going, it's starting to accelerate. And most of the growth, again, is in the emerging markets. UAE has two reactors running right now, two more being built, 1,000 megawatt. First, you know, Arab world reactors. That's, you're going to see more of that. You're going to see reactors in Egypt. You're going to see in all these places because that's the future, okay? Um, and so you're going to see people moving to that. In the West, you know, you're going to see this Malthusian uh, death cult of economic seppuku that thinks the solution is to have um, like in Oxfordshire, England, um, you know, uh, different commu commuting zones where you can only drive your car a certain amount of days per week and you have to get permission from the council, city council. Uh, that's where the West is going. And uh, that will continue until the population rises up and throws out the uh, elite Malthusian uh, human-hating death cult. In the East, this is what you're going to see, okay? Rational energy policy, bringing cheap, relatively cheap 
and useful and uh, highly uh, uh, efficient energy to the population. And here we go. If you go to the Our World data, you will see that if you, I don't have, I can't show you on here, but if you go to these little dots, it will show you, this is uh, each year. Um, oh, hold on. We had a record amount of nuclear power generation last year. You see the big drop here because of Fukushima, and then it's been nothing but increasing since then, right? Had a little bit of a pullback here. I think this was a uh, um, Germany shutting down some reactors, their reactors. But if you point on this stuff for 2022, you're at a record amount of generation. This is going to continue higher, folks. This is the future. And uh, you can, the energy return on energy invested on these nuclear power plants is like 70 to 80 times, okay? And it's just, it, it just makes sense. So I, I, I can't make it any more clear on why I'm bullish on nuclear power and uranium long-term because we haven't made the necessary investments because the price incentive is not there. So that's where the opportunity is. When that gets recognized and you have the big, you know, move higher, impossible to know. So I thought this was interesting. This is from Crescat Capital, Tavi Costa. And I think this is what Felix Zuloff was talking about also. I think this is kind of what we may see uh, over this decade. What am I talking about here? So we have this inflation now. We have this big wave of inflation, Fed's raising rates, tightening liquidity, trying to choke off that inflation. But the inflation is not necessarily all because of monetary policy. It's also because of supply chain disruptions. Those are not being fixed. So you get to a situation where you crush inflation, inflation comes down, you then go back to your old way, you're printing money again, reliquifying the system because of economic uh, uh, pullbacks or recessions. And then the next subsequent, you haven't fixed the supply issue. So when the demand comes back, it runs headlong into that undersupply that has not been fixed. And then you have a second wave of even higher inflation. That's what I think is going to happen. That's why I think oil prices, I kind of, I'm beginning to agree with what Eric Townsend of Market Voices says. I think that's the name of this podcast. Anyway, he thinks, and I think I agree, I'm starting to agree with this, is that because of the underinvestment we've made in new oil reserves and production, that we will not, the oil price, when we do turn the corner and reliquify and go through another liquidity cycle and upcycle, that there won't be sufficient energy to allow a full economic recovery. The, the energy prices will stifle any, um, because the, the supply simply won't be there. And it's, like I said, it's being artificially contained by bad policy, which we've already went over. And so this is what you're going to see. Then you'll see a big, another big inflation, you know, maybe double digit inflation, 10, 12, 15%. The oil price at $150 a barrel. It's then it will, you know, collapse demand again. The Fed will have to come back in with another. You go through, keep going through these cycles until you get a policy response that says, we're going to unleash, you know, look at, look at all of the inflationary things that are on the supply side. The lack of investment in energy and raw materials. Okay. 10 years of underinvestment. Policies in the West, in Western Europe and US and other OECD countries to uh, stifle new investment in raw materials, okay? To demonize it, okay? Not only that, now with World War III going on and with the multipolar world starting to emerge, the reshoring effort, the de-globalization of the world economy, that's going to be higher cost, okay? You're not in the situation anymore where you're just running around the world finding the low cost area to produce things and producing them there. Um, because people realize that having, you know, 90% plus of various supply chains based in China is probably not a good idea when you're competing with them or trying to, you know, uh, maintain your hegemon over their emerging a desire to be a player on the world stage. So um, a lot of things, you know, we've talked about these things. These are really complex things to really get into your me medium and longer term thinking, but I think they are going to be the drivers. And so I think this is a very 
nothing repeats exactly, but I think this is a good, uh, like I said, uh, Felix Zuloff has said something similar. I think he's a fairly good analyst. Um, but I think this is, this is a good approximation of what we could see over the next 10, 15, 20 years. We could see these multiple ways of inflation until we get policymakers in there that say, we have to have the supply response. We have to do things to de-bottleneck the supply side. Okay, And what I see is, at least in Europe or in the developed countries, is this Malthusian desire to limit supply, to limit economic growth, to actually de-industrialize. That's not going to be helpful for lower prices, in my view. So uh, anyways, so I wanted to throw this up here as the last uh, kind of a fun thing. We've said this all along, you know, if you go back, everybody's so focused on what the government says and what the Fed says. And yes, we have to analyze what they're doing because it, they are such, so involved in the economy nowadays. But let's not forget what the Fed was saying last year. And this uh, Sven Henrik, Heinrich was, uh, put this tweet out. Fed economic projections published last year at this time. In 2022, the Fed's fund rate will be less than 1% and GDP growth will be 4%. So that was their prediction last year. That's what the Fed said, economics. With all their hundreds of PhDs over there, that's what they said would happen in 2021. What really happened? In December 2022, the Fed's fund rate is now 4.25%. And 2022 GDP growth is now at 0.5%. Why is anybody still listening to these people? Exactly. They don't know what they're doing. So this view that the market has, or a lot of people have that, well, Powell is Volcker and he's not going to back down and he's going to crush inflation. That's not going to happen. Okay. As the economy deteriorates, and we saw like ISMs come out for services and manufacturing this week, they're both below 50. This economy is coming apart at the seams very, very quickly. Okay. And I think that it's going to be very obvious in the next couple quarters and then uh, you're going to see them rationalize. Uh, you'll see the pause come. And then subsequent to that, uh, the, the reliquification cycle, the next um, liquidity cycle, which I think will be even uh, you know, more than we've seen in the past. And so this, like I've used the analogy before, a car on a icy road going back and forth, you know, constantly putting two feet on the accelerator, two feet on the brake, skidding until you finally fly off the road. Um, that's your ultimate. So what does well in that situation? You know, gold. I think all of these raw materials, energy is going to rip. All these commodities are going to rip. And uh, when the next, and I think you're seeing gold starting to sniff this out, gold and silver. Um, they will be way ahead of the curve as far as sniffing out the next liquidity cycle. And I think, like I said before, we're closer to that happening than to the beginning of the cycle. This, I don't believe anything these people say. Yes, I listen to them because you have to analyze what they're doing. But uh, um, I don't think that we're gonna have rates higher for longer. I just don't see it. They'll crash the economy and the, and the debt that is in the system won't be able to take it. So that's my view. Uh, that's it for this week. Again, guys, appreciate uh, the viewership. I don't think we're going to meet the goal of getting to 10,000 subscribers by the end of the year. You know, this thing goes in cycles when resource I'm kind of attached, you know, I've kind of typecasted myself into this resource analysis, but I don't just analyze resources. I am, uh, I will get bullish. I will buy anything if it's cheap enough and it has a catalyst for changing. Like I said, that's why I'm like in a place like Uzbekistan, there's other emerging markets. I like, um, we talked about that in the last issue of the, actionable intelligence alert newsletter. I actually have a bank that I'm very bullish on. Um, so if something's cheap enough, I'll buy it. Uh, but I think that with resource markets and commodity prices down, uh, a lot of the tourists, a lot of the people that came into this market late, they've went away now, they've lost interest. But again, I mean, if you look at the newsletter, we have, of course, we were in a lot of resource stocks because that's what was cheap over the last couple of years. Uh, but we, like I said, I'm constantly looking for situations uh, to invest in that are cheap, that have a catalyst. And if that's, you know, a food producer, if that's a coal stock, if that's an insurance company, I mean, I'll buy it. 
if it makes sense. So um, if you have interest in understanding, you know, how we take these ideas we talk about every week and make them into market beating uh, investments and speculations, then uh, consider taking a subscription to the Actionable Intelligence Alert newsletter. Information for that is in the show notes below. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. Appreciate uh, your support and your listening to uh, this. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you next week.